I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Time to come clean. Once upon a time, I was all business, all analytical. And I have some friends who probably say I'm still that way. Work was all about the solution or preventing the problem. My focus on people, well, I, I wasn't mean-spirited. I just thought everyone should be like me. About four years into my career, there were some people who cared about me and said, look, you're smart, but you need to go to charm school. And so I did. I'm still a work in process, but looking back, that was a major turning point in my financial career. And because of my background, I certainly take note of certain books that hit my radar. So when my next guest book popped up in my email from Amazon, I was immediately intrigued. I not only bought and immediately read people's skills for analytical thinkers, I reached out to the author to book an interview. And then Gilbert I. Kellenboom said, absolutely. And I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation here on CFO Bookshelf. Before Gilbert Eichelenboom started his career in data science, he was once a poker player. When I was studying in my second year in university, I started to be very interested in, in poker. Someone introduced me to the poker world, and I, I've always loved games, but I didn't know how to play poker. But I got into it quite yeah, rapidly, so to say, and I got very fascinated with the game. Did you get into some of the winnings? I mean, did, did did it become profitable for you? Yeah, it took a long time. It was a long road. And the good thing is, and it's, some, it's a deliberate um, decision I've made that I never wanted to deposit any money. So I started with play money. You could play on PokerStars with with these fake chips. And when you have, when you had a lot of them, like a million or something, you could swap them or trade them for 10 bucks so that, that's what i did different times and then started playing on one two cents and started to yeah improve and improve and i see a lot of parallels between poker and, and life and and business because you need to be consistent you need to learn every day and you need to analyze your decisions and your behavior and that's a parallel to the other topics we're going to talk about then you jumped into, so it sounds like you then went to school and then you got into the analytical world, uh, data analytics, I'm assuming. Yeah, I I started my career in data and analytics and my background was in behavioral science. But I also thought, okay, I want, I'm very passionate with numbers. In high school, my best grades were always for mathematics and physics. So I was kind of lost in the beginning what type of career I should choose. But I decided, okay, I want to have a, a broad way of development. And I found that in consulting, in data and analytics consulting. And I loved it because I could analyze the data and see um, what would be the ne next best action. And especially I was interested in analyzing behavior of people because I could yeah, bring together, bring together those two worlds, those passions of mine namely data and analytics and human behavior. So you already had an interest in people, the the people aspect of your work. It, it wasn't something you had an aha moment down the road, right? Yeah, and I got more interested in it when I struggled myself uh, interacting with other people because I was someone that always 
was always interested in others and always enjoyed making conversations. But at the same time, I was really introverted and, and shy and, and anxious to, to approach people, even though I loved it, but I couldn't really do it. And I tried to push myself and analyze all those interactions afterwards to see what I can improve, could improve. But at the same time, because I was analyzing so much, I was also analyzing in the conversation. So in a conversation like we have right now, I would think, okay, what's the best thing to say? Um, what I'm about to say, does it contribute enough to the conversation? Is this funny enough? Is this smart enough? And that's, of course, not really what you want because in a conversation, you need some more spontaneity and a good connection. And I was so focused on the content that I was not um, paying much attention anymore to the relationship and the connection. And that's something I wanted to change. And that drove my interest uh, in personal development and psychology. We had Robert Bob Stahl on our show a few months ago. He's one of the global experts in SNOP, sales and operations planning. And he talked about what's called the 60-30-10 rule. And he got that from Laura Ciceri, who is a logistics supply chain expert. She has like 400,000 people following her on LinkedIn. But the way that 60-30-10 rule goes is you're starting a new project. Data, data itself is going to result in about 10% of success, which is odd, especially in the sales and operations planning world. You'd think that data would be the big deal. And then the 30% leading to success is the the intellectual capital or the, the know-how, the intellectual property. You'd think that would be big. He says, no. 60% of the success comes from behavioral change. Do you agree with Bob and Laura? Is that why most or many projects fail? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with uh, with them because what is what is easy is, is the data. What is difficult is people and human behavior because people need to change their mindset around around data and how to work. And that's much more difficult than analyzing some data. And what's also difficult is that in the data world, many people need to work together. So having a, a fantastic team of data scientists does not guarantee any, any, any great value from data. You need to have great data scientists, but also data literate uh, business stakeholders. And they need to work together and understand what type of questions to ask each other and how to co-create so that they get the best out of data, out of, out of the data. And what I've seen a lot in the last years is that big companies, they hire expensive data scientists. And then one year after, they're so disappointed because nothing came out of it and there was not the return on investment and the data scientists got blamed. And then they left, you know, they felt unappreciated. And I think it's a shame. And it shows that, yeah, you need both sides, the data and the business. And often there's a big gap and to close that gap, you need to understand behavior. So I absolutely agree. I love your book, People's Skills for Analytical Thinkers. Early in the book, you reference two uh, studies, two research studies, one of them by uh, Deloitte. And in that Deloitte research, they talk about, I believe the term is hybrid jobs. And we're talking in the context of of 
analytics uh, data. What are hybrid jobs? Hybrid jobs are jobs that bring together technical skills and more soft skills like people skills and communication. And those skills or those type of jobs are becoming more valuable and are also increasing in terms of salary. And why is that? It's exactly why um, I just described this, this gap between data and business. So people that can make this bridge between data and business understand both the analytical side as well as the psychology and the business impact that is so important and so valuable. And that's why this role and these type of skills are becoming more important, having both technical skills and good communication skills. If this is so important, Gilbert, why, in your opinion, why isn't this being taught? Why aren't people skills more emphasized at the university college level? If we only had the answer, if we only had the answer, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of learning these type of skills earlier in our life, in our lives, because we just need to need to figure it out in high school, in primary school, and we don't learn how to, how to talk to other people, how to be empathetic, how to negotiate, how to sell. Even though we start with those those type of topics when we're six years old, so actually I'm. I'm also thinking I have this this kind of dream. It's something for the future to write a children's book focused on soft skills and not being so... And, and of course, it's going to be a bit more indirect. It can be a story like The Lion King, but with some kind of lessons in, packed in there in a nice children's story. So that's something um, I'm dreaming of in the future. Uh, I will buy it immediately. I'll buy a case of them, Gilbert. I want to get into the book. You talk about our brain being a set of algorithms. Uh, even though I know the answer, can you just explain that concept? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, was, I was thinking a lot how can use metaphors and, and language that appeals to more analytical thinkers, because of course it's a, a different audience and people think in an analytical way. And the metaphor I use are that your brain is a set of algorithms. So based on inputs, based on what you see, based on what you observe, your one of your algorithms is triggered and the output is your behavior. To give a very concrete example, many analytical thinkers, when they see a problem or when someone asks for help, they dive in right away. They get into their laptop, they get into the data without having a full understanding of what is the actual question or what is the why? What is the context? What is the, what they do? The, does the other person want to achieve? And yeah, based on all our experiences and things we've learned in our childhood or after, yeah, we've built all these algorithms and those algorithms give us the, the results we're after or not. But luckily we can also make changes. Would it help you if you were to hear from one of your readers how they took your algorithm? So you talked about the input, the process, and the output. I love that so much. But in my pea-sized brain, I thought, this makes sense. The process is the behavior. So I started thinking before the behavior, the behavior, and after the behavior. And as I started thinking about it in that light, it's like, this is really good stuff. So again, I'm just saying this book is outstanding. Uh, you talk about the elephant and the rider. And and I think it was, is, was it Switch? There's, I can't remember which book the Heath brothers wrote. I loved it. 
and just being reintroduced to the whole concept of the elephant and the rider is huge in this context of our brain being an algorithm. Can you just explain or explain what that elephant and the rider is, which again, I, I just thought you nailed it, knocked it out of the ballpark. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. To, to give some context. So imagine you're driving a car and you're approaching a red traffic light. Then the question is, what do you do? When do you decide to brake? When do you press the brake? And of course, there's many different variables that you take into account. Your speed, the distance to the traffic light, the other cars. So those are all the rational variables. But there may be some emotional variables as well. Like maybe you have a, a car sick child next to you or you're in a rush to a meeting with, an, with another CEO and you really need to nail that meeting. So maybe you're a bit more stressed. And so there's emotional variables and rational variables. And analytical thinkers like me tend to focus on the more analytical or the rational variables. And my point is in the data world and in your life, the all the decisions that you, that you make and all the uh, variables that your algorithms process are full of emotional variables. And my point is that you need to take them into account and pay attention to what happens. Now back to the elephant and the rider. There's, um, there's this metaphor that I use in the book. It's, um, it's by Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist, and he uses this, this metaphor. And basically the brain consists of two different, two different systems that process your, the, all the inputs into your behavior, the output. And those two systems are the, the emotional brain and the rational brain. And the rational brain is the, the rider, the person on top, and the emotional brain is the elephant. And even though we think we are quite rational, we make rational decisions, in reality, this is totally not true because research shows that around 95% of the decisions we, we make based on, based, on, based on emotions. And this is also, and that's why the emotional brain is an elephant because the guy on top can say, hey, this is where we need to go, go straight on or turn right. But if the elephant sees something pretty, something shiny, something tasty on the left, it will turn left and the rider can smack the elephant and say, this is where we need to go. But the elephant will go left anyways. And it shows that the emotional brain, emotions are much more powerful and have much more influence than um, the rational brain. And that's why we need to understand it. We need to uh, become more aware of what's happening with all the emotions of ourselves and of others because it helps to us to communicate better. One of my biggest takeaways of that whole section of the book is don't slay the elephant. I mean, tame it, embrace it, uh, and and use it for what it's good for. It, it, did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. That's how I see it as well. And of course, you can push aside all your all your, your emotions, but it doesn't really work. Sometimes it can also help help you to make better decisions because many decisions in life you cannot make based on rational analysis only especially especially the big ones who to marry and where to work and where to where to live you cannot calculate what's the best next best action right even though we would love to but it's it that's not how it works and by understanding for example if you journal at the end of the day what made this what made this day great uh, you get a lot of um, 
great inputs or great insights in yourself. So maybe it was because you talked to a lot of people or you, or you, because you did a lot of analysis or because you um, had to travel a lot for your work. And all those insights you can then incorporate in the decisions. But of course, this this having energy of or being energy drained does not have, have anything to do with the rational variables, rather with the emotional ones. I have a non-scientific survey question to throw at you. When you were playing poker and in your data analytics job, did you focus more on your blind spots or your bright spots? <laughs> mm. I, I think I know. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming you spent more time on the blind spots. Maybe, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, is I it, think so. And I and so when you brought up the whole concept of blind spots and then bright spots, I thought, this is healthy. What's the difference between the two? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, blind spots is what many people know, at least the name, right? Things we aren't aware of, kind of uh, weaknesses we are not aware of. But on the other side, of course, we have bright spots as well. So strengths we are not aware of. And why is that? It's because it's so easy for us. You know, if you have a certain strength, if you're really good at analyzing uh, a, a business case, or if you're really good at, you know, finding the next best action in, in, in a business proposal or, or whatever, you have certain strengths. And for me, it was finding structure in, in meetings. So when we were sitting in a big group of people, we're writing a proposal for data analytics and it was a big pressure was on that meeting. And the conversation was kind of um, all over the place. And that's when I, when, I, when I said, okay, let's structure the conversation. And I wrote down what was the core of the problem we were tackling, we're trying to tackle. And for me, it was nothing, right? It was kind of log- the most logical thing to do. It felt easy. But afterwards, people came up to me. They said, okay, when you wrote down the core of the problem and everything got so much more structured and it contributed so much to the, to the outcome of the meeting, then I started to realize, hey, maybe, maybe this is a strength of mine and maybe this is a bright spot. So I started to apply it more and more and started to find these, these unstructured meetings or find the moments when these meetings or these interactions were unstructured and I tried to structure them. And it felt so easy because it was a bright spot. Batman versus Joker algorithms. What the heck is that? <laughs> we discussed algorithms, so these behavioral patterns. And of course, there's positive algorithms, things that um, produce the results you're after, but also uh, more negative patterns. For example, there's a lot of there are a lot of people who are afraid of 
even though they have great ideas. But maybe in their childhood or any any time in their life, when they when they spoke when they spoke about their new ideas, maybe they were cut down. And thanks to that, they developed this behavioral pattern, this algorithm that they should not speak speak up when they have an idea because maybe it's stupid, maybe other people don't appreciate it. So this is an example of, of such a negative uh, pattern, negative uh, harmful algorithm. And I call these positive and negative algorithms, I call them Batman and Joker algorithms. And the Batman algorithms are strong and they know what's the right thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, there's the Joker algorithms that kind of trick you in the wrong behavior and that lead to very yeah, bad results for you. Speaking of one versus the other, there's one other duo I want to bring up. And I also love this section of the book, Nice Guys versus Mind Speakers. And we may think that it's good to be a nice guy, but the way you word it and describe it, that's not always in the best position to be. So what is a mind speaker and contrast that with the nice guy? Yeah, I'll start with the nice guy. And and many people kind of know about the nice guy concept, but I speak it about it in a slightly different way because it's not just the, the guy who tries to please others, but it's also a person who who wants to please others to keep the keep the interaction positive. But if we look under the hood, then we also see that the, the intent, intention is not very nice because why do nice guys or nice girls want to keep the interaction positive? It's because they want to be liked. They want to be approved of. And that's exactly what I was. I was a huge nice nice guy, and I was not not. Of course, I was partly nice because I wanted to be. I think I think that was the right thing to do. You were on the other hand. You were a highly intelligent nice guy. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and at the same time, I was also uh, nice in the hope that other people would like me, thanks to my behavior. And this is something I wanted to get rid of. And I think it's it's unhealthy. And I think many people have embedded this, you know, and it's also thanks to all the evolution when, so thousands of years ago, we lived in a tribe and when we stood out too much or our behavior was, was strange to the, to the group, you might get rejected or kicked out. And back then, rejection was, was, was fatal, right? You, you may die when you're kicked out of the group. And we still have this uh, in our in, in us, and our brain is still wired that way. But of course, we can we can change this. And then I talk about the mind the mind speaker, and this is a person who, um, of course, is nice to other people, is interested, is but 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 uh, but with the good intention. So because it's this person thinks it's the right thing to do, not to manipulate other people in liking him or her. One thing I, I appreciate that you brought up in the book is you've got these great frameworks. They're simple. They're very, it's a very visual book, but I appreciate that you brought up a key point and that's just the whole concept of self-awareness. Is it maybe fair to say that self-awareness starts first or at some point you need to be self-aware so you know how you can come across to other people? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would always start with with self awareness. Um, it's it's also the first part of my book, as you know. But 
I, I, th- I don't think self-awareness is ever done. I think we're a work in progress forever. Until we die, we can discover more about ourselves. And I think it's crucial to understand yourself a bit better to see how you come across and how other people might see you when you are, you are maybe too, too blunt or too direct. If you're too focused on the, on the content and you don't have any intention to harm other people or to step on their toes. But if you're very focused on the content, like many analytical thinkers are, you may do that. And to become more aware of that, I think it helps tremendously in, in work situations and in your life, the rest of your life as well. Gilbert, this has been fantastic. We have a few more minutes. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at mindspeaking.com? Yeah, absolutely. I I focus on giving presentations and training programs to analytical analytical type of people, analytical thinkers. Right now, I'm mostly focused on people that work with data and analytics because they form such a um, an important group, and they need to not just analyze the data and find those insights, but also communicate it. Because I think it's such a shame that many insights and many data foundations they are never received well by the by the audience because they don't understand or they're not convinced. So they need to, yeah, the people in data, they need to have excellent communication skills and and get such a hybrid profile of technical skills and, and people skills. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm curious to, to, to hear your perspective as well. Earlier we spoke a bit about schools, whether these type of skills should be taught earlier in school. What, what's your perspective on that? I'm all in. And, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. I, I've been blessed with some really good jobs in the past. Started my career at KPMG. Uh, back then it was called KPMG Pete Marwick. And worked with some amazing companies after that. And I was always a person who kept getting promoted, kept getting promoted. But I was very intense extremely intense. (laughs) You talk about Mr. Analytical, that was me. Somebody said, Mark, you are a keeper, but we need to ship you off to Dale Carnegie. And that hurt my pride. Back then, it was in the 1990s. It was a 13-week course for three to four hours. And the first class, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then I started thinking, why the heck is this stuff not taught in high school? I'm not talking, Gilbert, I'm not talking about college. High school. Hey, junior high. And by my kids at the time were junior high, young teens, and they were required to read How to Win Friends and Influence Others. So that's a long, rambling answer to absolutely yes. And one, two courses, and I would make it fun. And I would actually use that book of Carnegie. I would use your book too now, now that we know <laughs> about it. So did, did I pass? Is, is that a good good response? Yeah, any response is a good response. But of course, I'm, I'm glad to hear you believe in this. And I think it makes such a big difference. And it's it's wonderful to to hear people's people's perspective when they read my book because sometimes I get emails from people and of course it's the book is mainly focused on a professional level, but on, on, on work situation. But I got a, I got a few messages from mainly guys as well. They said, uh, I, the book, the book helps so much. I, and what's surprising is that they have conversations with their spouse or with their partner. 
and that also those dynamics change a bit. So I was I was happy to see that. I'm not, I'm not a counselor, but if I can have a little bit of impact on that side, um, that makes me happy too. The the other there's some secret sauce in your book, and I think you know this, but. I do work with a lot of CFOs around the United States, coaching, mentoring them. And we put a lot of emphasis on people skills. My close rate as a consultant going back to 2001 is almost 100%. Almost. That doesn't happen without that Dale Carnegie uh, training. And I think if you keep peeling the skin from the onion, what you're going to find at the very heart is it's not about you. It's about the other person. And that's really what right. your book is is about. It's not about you. It's about the other person. And that's why these algorithms are important. So again, that's why this stuff, it's it's soft, but it's hard. <laughs> I, I think Tom <laughs> Peters uh, taught us that. But again, this is a, this is a work of art. And, and I love what you put together in, in this phenomenal uh, book. Can, can I ask you one last question? Can you Can you tell us... What is a typical engagement? So let's say you work with maybe, maybe you're doing a consulting gig. Maybe it's 10 people, 15 people. I'm sure there may be some speaking, but once you start working with them, can you share how you go about doing your work, sharing your deliverables? My default training program looks like, of course, I tailor it for companies, but it seems to uh, fit with many challenges of many people. And it consists of three sessions. The first session is all about business understanding. So understanding what type of questions they need to ask to understand what type of models or what type of insights they need. And like you just mentioned, it's all about the other person, not about the data, not about the insights. It's about understanding the other people, how they make decisions, how do they do their work and what's important to them. So that's that's the first session, work, workshop one about business understanding. Then the second one is about getting buy-in and persuasion. And of course, it's all connected. You also need to understand what is important to the other person, to the, to your audience, if you want to be persuasive. And you need to communicate your insights in a persuasive, persuasive way. Then the last part is data storytelling, which all comes down to not throwing the dry data and the dry facts, but wrapping it in a, into a story that makes your audience want to listen. And yeah, people walk through those three workshops. And what I found very important is that because we talk about behavior and in, in the beginning you said uh, changing behavior is so difficult. And it is. That's why I believe you should not have a single training session, but a t- different training sessions. And, diff- and then I encourage people to put in practice what they've learned throughout um in between those training sessions. And that, that's what I do. So I give different videos to with just a, a few minutes, but nudge them again to think about the materials and reflect and be more self-aware because that's what it all starts with. This is CFO Bookshelf. We ask every guest this question. What are some of your favorite books? And, and I know you're a reader, but what are some of your favorites? Yeah, the first one that really got me into the reading uh, mode was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's a book I I read in Cuba. I was uh, on a holiday there in kind of preparation or uh, in advance of my first job. And I thought it was a book about business, but it was much more a book about life and how to be more proactive. And 
I think it was a fascinating book. And the second one that I want to name is The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. It's a fascinating book, deep dive into human behavior. And I got a much better understanding about myself and others. I am so proud of your work. Uh, your book is fantastic. And it's just been an honor having you on the show. I'm going to be following your progress. Uh, this is a name. We're going to be hearing your name and the book over the next, actually, I think many, many years. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. This conversation and yeah, I think we're going to speak a bit more about these topics because we seem to share interest and um, that will bring some interesting conversation. Thanks a lot for all the preps. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Gilbert I. Kellenboom, thank you very much. Gilbert's mission is to help 100,000 analytical thinkers to improve their people skills. And you know what? He's going to do it. His book is People Skills for Analytical Thinkers. The subtitle is Boost Your Communication and Advance Your Career. I recommend it. And I happen to know that our CEO audience is growing on this podcast. So I consider getting a few of these books and passing them around. Also, you can learn more about Gilbert's work at mindspeaking.com. This is Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.